This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and of the humanity of Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 190, entitled, Worshiping the Son, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. In this week's episode, we will look at a passage that has interesting implications for the Christology of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. Now, there are many ambiguities and interpretive issues with this single verse. And in this episode, I will offer some thoughts as to perhaps the best way to read them. I'm just going to offer them as suggestions because they are ambiguous in many cases, and the purpose of this podcast is not to settle your theology, but to start some conversations. What does it mean that Jesus is God's firstborn within this passage? Where did God lead Jesus, according to this verse? And what are we to make of the mysterious passage that is quoted as scripture, where angels are summoned to worship Jesus? And if Jesus is distinguished from the heavenly angels and from God, what does that mean about the Christology of the book of Hebrews? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the word again. Yes, we have to begin by looking at a particular word again. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 in two different translations, and you will note that the placement of this word again is in different spots between these two passages. So the New American Standard Version of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6 says this, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. Now the New Revised Standard Version reads this way, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So one of the many interpretive issues involving Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 deals with how the adverb again, which is the Greek word Pauline, functions within this passage. And the difference in placement can be observed in the New American Standard Version to where the word again is modifying the act of bringing the firstborn into the world. God again brings the firstborn into the world, meaning God has done it before. And of course, the New Revised Standard Version just uses the word again to simply introduce another scriptural citation, just like we've seen in the previous verse, chapter 1, verse 5, to where a variety of scriptural citations are being introduced. Now, how someone decides the original intent 
of this word again, and it's grammatically ambiguous, will naturally affect other interpretive issues within this verse. So this is not a standalone issue as to whether the word again is just simply the beginning of the sentence as it introduces a new scriptural citation, or if it's modifying the fact that God is bringing the firstborn into the world. This actually has connection to another interpretive issue that we're going to look at a little bit later. For example, if the word again is connected to the verb brings, namely God brings the firstborn into the world again, at least a second time, then it suggests that God has already brought the firstborn into the world at some unspecified point in the past, and that this particular passage, chapter 1, verse 6, is looking at when God brings the firstborn into the world again. This would be evidence for those who think that the world, in chapter 1, verse 6, is the earth to come, namely a reference to the second coming. And these interpreters would naturally see the act of God bringing Jesus into the world again as a reference to the future second coming. And this is an interpretive option that a few have taken. Now we should also note that taking the word again as another way of introducing a scriptural citation has already been used in Hebrews chapter 1. If we look in the previous verse, chapter 1, verse 5, notice how the word again is used to introduce scriptural citations. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, there it is, and again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. From there, you would go into Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, and it would continue by saying, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and then scriptural citation. So the use of again to introduce another scriptural citation would fit rather well, especially in a passage like Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 13, where many passages of scripture are being quoted over and over for the author's particular argument of demonstrating that Jesus is greater than heavenly angels. Furthermore, out of the nine other occurrences of the Greek word again, the Greek word Pauline, used in the book of Hebrews, out of the nine other occurrences, so there are ten in total, the majority of them are used to, guess what, introduce scripture. So for what it is worth, I do think that it's more likely that the word again was intended by the author to introduce a new scriptural citation rather than being intended to modify the verb brings. And so this is one of the places where I have to disagree with the way the NASB words it, and I actually think that the New Revised Standard Version is correct, at least in this particular passage. So what does it mean that God brings the firstborn into the world? We need to figure out what does this word world mean and how does it function within this passage. That moves us to our second point. Point number two, defining world 
in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. So our passage says, When he, namely God, brings the firstborn, that's Jesus, into the world. When he brings the firstborn into the world. Of course here, the subject is God. God brings the firstborn Jesus into the world. But what is the meaning of world here? It is important to state that the author of Hebrews uses two different Greek words that are regularly translated as the English word world in English translations. These Greek nouns are cosmos and ikumeni. In our current passage, ikumeni is the Greek word that is used. And this is important because the author of Hebrews uses this Greek word, ikumeni, for world, again, a second time, in chapter 2, verse 5. In chapter 2, verse 5, this is really important, it says that he, the author, is speaking about the world to come. The world to come. The ikumeni to come. Many biblical Unitarians have yet to pick up on the clue that the world that is being discussed in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6 is the world to come, as the author of Hebrews explicitly tells us in chapter 2, verse 5. It's not the Greek noun cosmos, it's the Greek noun ikumeni, and that's used in chapter 1, verse 6 and chapter 2, verse 5. So, what does the Greek noun ikumeni mean? Answer, well, we can open up our BDAG lexicon, which is the best New Testament lexicon that you could buy at this point. And the BDAG lexicon notes that ikumeni typically refers to the inhabited earth or to the Roman Empire. However, the lexicon also comments that our current passage and it says specifically in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 6, denotes the, quote, heavenly realm, end quote. I think that's very interesting. So our lexicon is going to suggest that although the normal way that this word for world is used refers to the inhabited earth or to the Roman Empire, in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6, the lexicon suggests that this is denoting the heavenly realm. Furthermore, the BDAG lexicon lists the occurrence of ikumeni in chapter 2 and verse 5. Remember that passage that says it's the world to come. And it lists that passage, chapter 2 and verse 5, under a category of extraordinary uses, not under the subheadings of the inhabited earth or the Roman Empire. So why does the best New Testament lexicon suggest that the meaning of world in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 is that of the heavenly realm. Well, the context of the argument thus far has focused on Jesus' post-resurrection exaltation to, guess what, to heaven. Now consider the following evidence to make this particular point. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. Where is that? That's in the heavenly realm. In the next verse, chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus has inherited a more excellent name 
than the angels. This is part of Jesus' exaltation. To where was Jesus exalted? Answer, to the heavenly realm. In chapter 1, verse 5, we have two quotations about Jesus being designated as the messianic Son of God in light of his exaltation. Exaltation to where? Answer, to the right hand of God in the heavenly realm. So in chapter 1, verse 6, when God brings Jesus into the world, wherever that is, the angels are supposed to worship Jesus. Where are the heavenly angels usually? Answer, in heaven. So after looking at the BDAG lexicon, which suggested that the meaning of world in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6 is the heavenly realm, and after looking at the context, which points towards the heavenly exaltation of Jesus, who is enthroned at God's right hand, I then go and I look at the modern commentaries on the book of Hebrews to see how they argue the reference to world should be understood in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. And what I notice is that there is a consensus opinion, a vast majority, that say, yes, the world in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6 is indeed the heavenly realm to which Jesus has been exalted. So I'm noticing that our best lexicon is defining world as heavenly realm. The consensus of modern commentators are saying that Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6 uses world to refer to the heavenly realm. And the argument of Hebrews seems to naturally be pointing towards the heavenly realm. This would suggest that the meaning of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6 would refer to the time when God led Jesus into heaven, where the angels are. That then those angels were to worship Jesus. This fits quite nicely the argument that the author has been making. And that argument is to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus when compared to the angels. But the understanding that the world to come, about which the author is speaking, and he tells us that in chapter 2, verse 5, this world to come being interpreted as the heavenly realm doesn't really seem to fit very well at first glance because Christian theology understands that the world to come is to be a renewed earth. It's a place on earth. It's not a place above earth, a heavenly realm in the skies, in the clouds. It's a place down here on the earth. So how do we make sense of this? We need to look more closely at how the author of Hebrews frames the coming age and the kingdom of God in order to make sense of defining the coming world as something that is heavenly in description. This moves us to our third point, point number three. The concept of the world to come in the theology of Hebrews. So when we look through the argument of Hebrews, the nature of the age to come is quite regularly described with, and I want you to notice this in the passages that I'm going to cite, it is described with heavenly language. The age to come is described with heavenly language. And I think it's heavenly in the sense of a description, 
not quite so much as a location. So let me lead you through some passages in Hebrews and we can draw some conclusions based on that evidence. So in chapter 4 of Hebrews, the author speaks of the coming rest by drawing on the rest that the Israelites found upon entering the promised land. This rest is still available for the people of God, suggesting a renewed promised land here on a renewed earth. However, the author says that, quote, the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 10. And this is a reference to Jesus in his exaltation, being exalted to heaven, has entered into his rest. So Jesus entered his rest, namely by being exalted to the heavenly realm. We can also look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, which says that this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. So Jesus entered into something, namely the heavenly temple, by entering through the veil as a forerunner for us, suggesting that we are going to enter into it in some particular fashion. We are going to follow him in that direction. Now, I know this might make people uncomfortable, but let me continue showing the citations and let's reserve judgment until we look at all the evidence. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 8, says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That's chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are looking for a city. They went to the place that they're going to receive as an inheritance. A few verses later, in verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, notice this language, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God has prepared a heavenly city for these people. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 through 16. And then at the end, in chapter 13, verse 14, it says, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. 
So if we left to the side for a moment, our current passage, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, this is what we can observe based on those passages we just looked at. Having been exalted to heaven, Jesus has entered the rest, which is likened to the promised land to come, an inheritance for the faithful. The patriarchs were aliens in the land of promise, but they were looking forward to a city from God. This city, which is also described as a country, is a heavenly city, and it is prepared by God, and God is in heaven. This city also belongs to the faithful, and it is a city that is to come. So, if the promised inheritance is a heavenly city prepared by God, but one day it's going to come and be likened unto the promised land where believers will rest, then it is not so out of the place for the world to come where God has led Jesus is currently in heaven. The kingdom of God is also described in Scripture as the kingdom of heaven, which will descend from heaven down to earth at Jesus' second coming. And this, I suggest, is how to best make sense of the on-earth references to the age to come, as well as the exaltation to heaven spoken of in regard to Jesus. Jesus has entered into this new reality, this new creation that is going to be given as a city, as an inheritance, as a promised rest at his second coming to the faithful, and the reception of this inheritance will be on a renewed earth. But it is currently prepared and stored in heaven. That is why I think the lexicon and the commentators are interpreting this word world in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 as the heavenly realm. Not that believers are going to go to heaven, but that this world is going to descend from heaven down to earth. So enough of that. Let's talk about the reference of Jesus being the firstborn. Point number four, the meaning of firstborn in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6. So Jesus is referred to in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 as God's firstborn. Now when used of Jesus, the New Testament uses the noun firstborn in two different ways. It's only when it's used of Jesus, the New Testament has two different ways in which the noun firstborn, Greek noun prototokos, is used. Number one, the firstborn refers to the Son of God to whom a great inheritance is given. And the main passage for this is Psalm 89, verse 26 and 27, to where God will make this king God's firstborn, namely, the highest of the kings in all the earth. So this meaning of firstborn is a highly exalted king who is the greatest of the kings in all the earth. And this interpretation, I think, fits pretty well, especially after two quotations in the previous verse, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, that talk of Jesus being God's son, namely, as the messianic king. So we have God's son quoted 
from Psalm 2-7 and God's Son quoted from 2 Samuel 7-14. And then in the very next verse, we have Jesus being God's Son, God's firstborn Son, drawing from Psalm 89-26-27. So three passages back-to-back, boom, 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 indicating that Jesus is God's Son, namely the highly exalted Messianic King. I think that fits the context very well. Now the New Testament also uses the noun firstborn as a reference to God's wisdom. God's wisdom which was personified as God's first creation in passages like Proverbs chapter 8. So we got two different ways that the New Testament uses the noun firstborn in reference to Jesus. One being a highly exalted king in light of Jesus' exaltation post-resurrection, and also as a reference to Jesus being the embodiment of God's wisdom, and God's wisdom was described in the poetic passage of Proverbs chapter 8 as God's firstborn. Now, I'll admit that it's pretty tempting to reach for the interpretation of the wisdom reference, especially after I spent an entire episode arguing for wisdom Christology in the opening three verses of Hebrews chapter 1. That's a pretty tempting interpretive move that I would like to take. However, the more immediate context is not about wisdom Christology. Wisdom Christology is in verses 1, 2, and 3. But the exaltation Christology, post-resurrection, we can find in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. So firstborn is likely referring to the title of Jesus being exalted above the kings of all the earth due to his post-resurrection exaltation to God's right hand. So even though firstborn could be interpreted as referring to a wisdom Christology reference or to reference of Jesus being the exalted king, I think it's more likely that Jesus is being referred to as the exalted king. Now, as a footnote to this, I should make the comment for those that like to look for and mine references to supposed preexistence. The suggestion that firstborn is a reference to Jesus being the first created being in time, in the literal sense, I think that can be easily dismissed as an intention from the author of Hebrews because that does not fit the context at all. Nothing that the author is saying in verses 5 through 13 would indicate that firstborn would be looking back to creation and seeing Jesus the first created thing. I don't think that interpretive option would even fit. So we can dismiss that option and just knock it off the table. Okay, let's move to our fifth and final point, which is the citation and the question of worship. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, the author is certainly quoting scripture, and that scripture says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, there's a little bit of debate as to what passage the author is quoting. Some people think it's Psalm 97, verse 7. Now, the author of Hebrews is citing the Greek version, but we have to look at the Hebrew version and the Greek version to see how some of those changes were made. So, originally in the Hebrew of Psalm 97, verse 7, which is one of the options, the Hebrew says, 
Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods, lowercase g. So we have the command there, worship him, all you gods, in Psalm 97, verse 7 in the Hebrew. Now in the Greek version, it has changed that word gods to interpret as the interpreter has understood it to refer to angels. The Greek version of Psalm 97, verse 7 says, worship him, all you his angels. Okay, so some people think that that is the passage that is being quoted, although it's not a direct quotation. There's, that is what creates the ambiguity. Now, the majority of commentators actually point to Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And the difficulty of this interpretive issue is that Deuteronomy 32, verse 43 has an additional line in the Greek version, in the Septuagint, that doesn't appear in the Hebrew text. So if you read Deuteronomy 32, 43 in your English Bible, you're not going to see a reference to angels worshiping somebody else. But in the Greek version, there is a line in there that says, Rejoice ye heavens with him, and let all the sons of God worship him. In Deuteronomy 32:43, in the Septuagint. Now, I think it's likely that the author of Hebrews is drawing on this passage from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And what the author has done is he has interpreted this phrase, sons of God, to refer to angels. And so in his citation that's used in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, it doesn't say, let all the sons of God worship him. It says, let all the angels of God worship him. So that's part of the difficulty is that the quotation is not exact. And the author of Hebrews has made a change to this text that he felt was an appropriate change to make. He didn't seemingly feel like his audience would take offense to this particular change. Now, what's interesting for our study is that the object of worship in Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, is actually God. It's not Jesus. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, where it says, let all the sons of God worship him, they are to worship God. So what is the author of Hebrews doing by taking a passage where the angels are asked to worship God, and now the author of Hebrews is citing it to where Jesus is the object of worship? What are we to conclude from this particular use of Scripture? Are we to conclude that the author has now collapsed God and Jesus into a single being? Well, I don't think that's likely because God and Jesus are regularly distinguished in the book of Hebrews. So it's unlikely that they have been collapsed and now you just look at Jesus and God and think the same thing. Is it likely that the author of Hebrews thinks that Jesus is worthy of worship at the level that is due to God? by taking a passage to where God is worshipped and now using that to say Jesus is worshipped? No, I, I don't think that's the case either. The verb that's used for worship here, the Greek verb proskuneo, is a pretty basic word for worship, to which human beings are not infrequently the object of worship. You can just do a word study on proskuneo in the Septuagint and the New Testament, and you'll see that human beings are legitimately the object of worship with this particular verb. But if we place 
this use of scripture within the argument thus far. Remember, the argument is by trying to prove that Jesus is better than the heavenly angels. How could the author demonstrate this? Well, he could highlight Jesus' post-resurrection exaltation to heaven, and he could use scripture that request that the angels offer worship to Jesus. So if angels are worshiping Jesus, then surely Jesus is greater than the angels. I think that's the intention of the author of the book of Hebrews by citing this passage and making Jesus the object of angelic worship. So in conclusion, we have observed five particular points. The author of Hebrews probably intended what we now know as chapter 1 verse 6 as a reference to Jesus' exaltation and further evidence to conclude that Jesus is greater than the heavenly angels. Number two, by referring to Jesus as the firstborn, the author of Hebrews probably was drawing upon the sonship language previously argued in chapter 1 verse 5, which highlights Jesus as a great king, the greatest of the human kings, the messianic king. Number three, with the reference to God bringing Jesus into the world, this world probably is indicative of God leading Jesus into the heavenly realm at Jesus' exaltation to God's right hand. This heavenly realm is where the consummated kingdom and city are prepared as an inheritance to be given to the faithful upon Jesus' second coming, where the coming kingdom will be consummated on the earth. Number four, in order to further argue that Jesus is greater than the heavenly angels, the author of Hebrews probably cites Deuteronomy 32 in the Septuagint, where the angels are commanded to worship somebody else. And that object is now made to be Jesus. And lastly, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 distinguishes the exalted Jesus from two other categories. Jesus distinguished from God and Jesus distinguished from the heavenly angels. In fact, Jesus is ranked higher than the heavenly angels, but Jesus is ranked lower than God since Jesus sits at God's right hand. So if Jesus isn't God, and if Jesus isn't one of the heavenly angels, then the author almost certainly regards Jesus as a human being. A human being, highly exalted and greatly empowered. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Please tune in next week as we struggle with the difficult passage in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. A lot of people have been asking about this episode and looking for me to offer my thoughts on this passage. We're going to do it in our next episode, episode 191. We're going to tackle Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us. We are out promoting the truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You may offer a donation at the PayPal link that is associated with this particular episode. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. 
I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, you folks, please take care.